Mine are keys to Zion's city. Here beside the king, I walk. Turn your Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And for this morning, we'll look at the first four verses. This is the word of the Lord. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. For this resurrection celebration, we're, we're stepping away from Exodus into this wonderful paragraph in Colossians chapter 3. If you didn't yet get a handout and you would like to, they are in the, the information racks that are located in the back of the room. Feel free to step out and grab a handout. I think it might be helpful in our study this morning. And then children, if there are any that are still left waiting for cue, you can be dismissed. The children head off to Children's Church and at the end of the service, if you want to go and, and if you want to go and collect yours, it's down this hallway on this side of the room. So one of the great um, encouragements and blessings is that not only on Resurrection Sunday uh, do we see usually everyone together, but then we get to see so many friends and family. And so if, if there's something that happens in our church service that is a little unfamiliar to you, we want to try to be clear because we do want to be very hospitable and encourage, uh, encourage your part in our celebration this morning. We live in a culture that is very individualistic, and it's very um, prone to legal obligation. It's Western thinking is a worldview that we all come to a text like this one. We, we're just fiercely individualistic. And we tend to have a legal obligation or commitment. Now that's not a bad thing in itself, but we have to see that it makes us prone to a legalistic type of individualism. Like, I can do good. I can keep the rules. There's part of the good news of Jesus that we sometimes overlook because of our basic perspective of the world. There's part of resurrection celebration that we sometimes underemphasize because of our place in the world. If you were able to be with us this past Thursday, you saw that we highlighted two things, lament and participation. Today, we're going to highlight celebration and participation. So still participation. Here's the way I would summarize the last three or four days 
in our plan for gathering. Christ came to participate in our death. Then by God's grace, we have been raised with him to eternal life. Participation. He comes low to our station. And we, in turn, are raised on high to his station of glory. United in his life. Let me do a little bit of work with Colossians. When you step into a text and you haven't done the, the context work, I need to take just a minute to give you some context. The previous text to Colossians 3 assumes that all Christians are free in Christ and not obligated to legalism. That all of the legal demands of circumcision, of having self-made righteousness, that all of those, while they appear to be wise, they are in fact foolish. So that's already been addressed. And then the apostle Paul turns his thought to a more positive aspect of Christian living in this section. So the text begins here with a rhetorical question. If then. If then, as you sit here today, you have been. So I'm going to try to draw out, just as a way of a heads up, I'm going to try to draw out two things. I'm going to draw out tenses of some of the verbs. Like there's these already but not yet tenses. Past and future. So I'm going to try to draw out some tenses. The other thing I'm going to do is try to contrast the Christian view versus some other popular worldviews and see how this text shapes the Christian view where there are all around us some other popular worldviews. We see here one of the tenses. If then you have been, past tense, signifying that there's already completed work assuring us of eternal life. So my, my sermon idea sounds like this one. It sounds like Revelation 21.3. John is given insight into heaven. And he writes this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Participation. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. Participation. God himself will be with them as their God. Participation. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making everything new. That's what I'm going to try to preach today. The Colossians are told how that happens. I'm making everything new, says God who sits on the throne. Christ has left the tomb. He's been raised on high and is now enthroned in glory. And what happens to us if that's true? What's Sunday? What's Monday? What's Tuesday? What's Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? What is true if in fact the resurrection has occurred, the tomb is empty, Christ has ascended, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and throne in glory? What does it mean? Well, let me give you these statements that I think are accurate biblically, and then we're going to unpack them. I'm just going to say them, and then we'll study them. First, if the resurrection if the ascension, if the enthroned glory of Christ is true, 
then, while we continue to live in mortal bodies, we are already embarking in new life. If that's true, then having died with Christ, we live with him and in him. If the resurrection is true, then life is bound to his for safekeeping and security. If the resurrection is true, then because he truly lives, his people truly live. If the resurrection is true, then because he has been raised to glory, his people will also appear in glory. If the resurrection is true, those statements are true. And if those statements are true, we should find them explained in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. So let's do that. And I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you three touchstones, uh, three hooks to hang your thoughts on. Okay? They are these. Participation with him in resurrection. Participation with him in resemblance. And participation with him in unseen reality. Okay? Participation, resurrection, resemblance, and not yet seen realities. Let's look at the first one. This text assures us that for those who are in Christ, we participate in both death and resurrection. Right away in verse 3. Again, I told you it's rhetorical. It's already been addressed earlier in the chapter. Uh, Look at chapter 2, verse 20. My Bible, it's on the same page. Chapter 2, verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations like don't handle, don't touch, don't taste? If you're united with Christ. So he picks up chapter 3, and he's addressing something he's already established. If then you have been raised with Christ, The foundation here is what we call, uh, this, is, this, is a, this is a point where I'm going to say something that might be confusing, and I don't want it to discourage you, I want to explain it. This is an indicative preposition statement, okay? So it's an indicative preposition statement. That means it indicates what has been done. You have been raised You didn't figure out how to come back from the dead. You have been. And it's a preposition, or or it's not a prepositional statement. It's a purpose statement. It's an indicative, fundamental statement of where we're headed. It indicates this has been done, a propositional statement. There we go. It's a propositional statement. If then you have been raised, then. Now for the Colossians, They're already really familiar with this. Remember, I already had you look over to chapter 2. Look at verse 12 in chapter 2. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. It's been established. 
that union with Christ is true life. And so he gets into this section and says, well, then, if then you have been united, you have also been raised with Christ. We could spend, we could spend the rest of the day, right, talking about what does it mean for us to be united to Christ Jesus. Our existence, our life hidden in Him. We could, we could just park there. But because I can't just park there, I want to highlight two aspects of what it means that we are united with Christ in His resurrection. The first is that we have real assurance if we're united with Christ. Real assurance of our salvation. There's no doubt Christ has successfully accomplished His mission. In other words, being hidden in Christ means Christ did all the work, but He includes us in the accomplishment, in the completion of the work. He did everything, and it's counted like we did it. When the hardest things happen, the really hard things happen, we're all tempted to wonder where is our salvation now? Where is God now? Is He really for me? Can I truly trust Him? The answer is yes. If we see that ultimately we are raised with Christ, if the end is already determined, then these afflictions that we're going through aren't editing the conclusion. In fact, they're preparing us for the conclusion. They're multiplying the joy of the conclusion. So where is God when it's really, really hard? Making us ready to be really, really joyful when we see the end. First is real assurance happens. If we're with Christ, real assurance happens. Secondly, adoption. Being in Christ means adoption. We're not just assured of salvation. We're actually adopted into God's family because we are united with God's truest Son in whom He is well pleased. United with Christ. You remember at Christ's baptism when the heaven opens and the voice declares, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And your life is hidden in Him then the next time you're tempted to think that God has become disgusted with you for your imperfections and your weakness to sinning, hear the voice from heaven say, this is my child in whom I am well pleased because your life is hidden in Christ. These are foundational truths for us. F.F. F. Bruce says this, if our death with Christ has severed the link that bound us to the old world order, then death and resurrection with Christ establishes a new link binding us to a new and heavenly order to that spiritual kingdom in which Christ our Lord is sovereign. We 
were bound to an old order. But if united in his death and resurrection, then we're bound, we're linked to a new, totally new order of his kingdom. What this means, this little statement, if then you are united with him in resurrection. What this tells us is that in the good news of Jesus Christ, there are two somewhat academic statements. The first is this one. Incarnational theology. God became man. And ascension theology. In incarnation, God came down to man to share with him in all of his likeness frailty to death. But it also means ascension theology. Ascension guarantees our change. It guarantees our transformation. In chapter 3, just look down with me at verse 7. We're not going to get to this point today, but I, I do want to highlight it. Verse 7. In these you two once walked, and you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. That is anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. See, you've put off the old self. The old link to the old order has been abolished. And, verse 10, if you're raised with him in new life, you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Incarnational theology. He came to us. Ascension theology. In him, we are seated at the right hand of the Father. I want to say, as I, as I end this participation in his resurrection, this first point, I want to say that there are dozens of Scripture promises that guarantee us adoption and security in Christ. Maybe the most vivid of them is Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. In Christ. And there should be a pressing question right now. How do I get in Christ? Well, the Bible tells us that from our perspective, the way into Christ is by trusting in Him alone for our salvation. Philippians chapter 3. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth there's something greater for me that is knowing Christ my Lord. That is being found in Him. What I want most is in the end to be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness that is my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God depends on faith. If then you are in Christ, there's no condemnation. Well, how am I to be in Christ? The righteousness that comes from God depends on faith. Let me ask you just this point before I go into the second. Would you, would you confess today God as your witness? The Spirit discerning your heart. Would you say today as you sit here, I know without doubt that I am trusting in Christ alone for eternal life. 
There's so many other things that can become props of true, singular faith in Christ. You can't sprinkle in, I think I'm a good person. You can't sprinkle in, I was raised in a Christian home. You can't sprinkle in, I've participated in church activities like communions and baptism. You can't sprinkle in anything else. Are you trusting in Christ alone? The way to be united with Him that's been ordained by God is faith. I would encourage you as we leave this point of the sermon to just prayerfully say, God, am I trusting in Christ alone? Or do I have some other version of hope that includes Christ but other things? So the first part we see in the text of Scripture is we have participation in His resurrection. If that's true, then we build on it. We have participation in His uh, a resemblance. I'm trying to stick with, uh, I'm sorry, in His, uh, um, no, it is resemblance. In His resurrection, in His resemblance. So let's go on to the second one. It's found also in verse 1 and then verse 2. It says this, Seek and set your mind on things that are above. So if... We're united with him. That includes resurrection, but it also includes resemblance. What are today's blessings that we experience because we are raised with Christ? Well, first and foremost, it means that we are already seated in the throne room of heaven. That's a pretty big one. What are the blessings, everyday blessings? What are the practical joys of being united with Christ right now? What's today, the 9th, April 9th? Today's April 9th. What's the, what, what can I grab onto and say, wow, this is awesome? Well, you're already seated in the throne room of heaven next to God. I, I, can't, give you, I can't give you a cooler thing to celebrate. There's, there's nothing better. That, that, was, that was the only bullet to shoot. That is worth celebrating. And, and that's the blessing of union with Christ. But here's what it means. Here's how it walks. We see everything from the vantage point of the throne room. Okay. I mean, it's really cool to be in the throne room already in Christ. But it means there's certain, like, indicators of a person who is there. And, and what Paul is calling people to do is live honestly to those indicators. Set your mind on and seek as priority heavenly things. Seek the things that are above. This sounds like elevating our, our conscience to a higher plane, doesn't it? Like Buddhists and Hindus, they, they seek that. That's a worldview where they seek a, a higher uh, plane of knowledge or, or mental existence. But Paul has in mind something so much more. When he says seek things that are above, he's talking about above principalities and powers which dominate 
everything we experience because Christ has ascended above those things. So if you are in Christ, then you're above this higher plane. I was going to use the word nirvana. And for probably two-thirds of you in the room, you would think of that plane of thinking. And then depending on your age, you would think of something else. Seek things that are above and set your mind on things that are above. Don't let your passion be earthbound. Don't let your passion be earthbound. Look at life from the standpoint of Christ's exalted place at the throne. Judge everything by the standard of new creation that you belong to. How would it affect your decisions if you were standing in the throne room dictating every choice you are making right now? Wouldn't everything change? Let me give you one. Let me give you one. It's really big, and, and I, I hope we can hold on to it. If you were standing in the throne room, what would you tell yourself to think about your death? We're united with him in both death and life. In incarnation theology, he came here to die because that's what we do. We die. In ascension theology, we are elevated to the throne room of God and we are perceiving, seeking, setting our mind on all things of earth as though standing in the throne room. What would you tell yourself to think about death as you stood in the throne room? I think it would be different than what we typically say to ourselves about death. Or at least are tempted to think about death. Reality is vastly more complicated than the simple division between atheism and theism. What, what's said here, true reality, if you're united with Christ, then see everything this way. That's immensely more complicated than just, are you a theist or are you an atheist? That is, that is a pointless question. There, there's no point in asking that question. Are you an atheist or a theist? Demons are theists. So what have we concluded by your confession of theism? You and the demons are running together. I mean, what's the point in asking that question? Thousands of theists are not in Christ. There's, oh, there's, this, there's this reality everywhere that sounds like this. We believe in the idea of God. We believe that myths matter. And the God myth seems to be the most powerful. 
a majority of theists do not believe that the ideas we hold about God need to, comp, uh, need to correspond to any single objective reality at all. They would write this text and say, if then you are theist, then be happy and helpful. That seems like a useful myth. And, and all of Christ is reduced to what is earthbound. Be happy and helpful. What matters for those that adhere to the God myth is that the ideas of God have a positive effect on the world as the world would define them. Religion seems valuable. Myth is beneficial. The idea of truth is useful if it helps you to be happy and helpful to the world around you. But the text says, if you're in Christ, then you're in the throne room and set your mind and seek after those things which are above. Our position in the resurrection means our ascension to a place where we see with a new perspective from the throne. United with him in resurrection, united with him in resemblance, we, we see things, we have a likeness, and third, united or participation in unseen reality. So verse three and four, united with him, participating with him in a way that's not yet seen. Verse three, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's, that's an amazing statement. You write in your Bible, put a box around the words in God, because that's a rare statement. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When? So, remember I told you I was going to talk about tenses? You have, and your life is, and still to come, when Christ appears. All right. Participation in unseen reality. When Christ, who is your life, appears... And you also will appear with him in glory. You died in relation to the old order. The idea is so strange that it has to be repeated for emphasis. You died. And as your new life, in which you've entered into, you have a new home where Christ himself is. Not only is our life hidden with Christ, but look, with Christ in God. Uh, this, is, this is incredibly significant to, to Christian um, doctrine, the doctrine of Jesus Christ. This is incredibly significant. Uh, okay, in a minute. 
The life of the true believer is hidden with Christ because they died with him, been raised with him. It's hidden in God because Christ himself has his being in God. And therefore, those who belong to Christ belong to the Father. That's the statement. Let me explain what that means. First of all, it means Hebrews chapter 2, the text we, we talked about on Thursday night. Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, then Christ had to partake of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's just a simple statement about what would you say to yourself about death if you were saying it from the throne room to yourself here. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sin of the people. Okay. Christ had to be like what he was delivering. And the text says he didn't deliver angels, but he could have if he was like an angel. But he isn't. He is the God-man. Not the angel man. He is the God man. And so in incarnation, he becomes like what he's saving to bring what he saves back to what he is. One with the Father. So we are united with Christ even in God? Okay, here's what I was going to say a moment ago. We don't believe in what's called uh, pantheism. Pantheism is, uh, a lot of people in the world think this, everything in the world is God. Or similar to that, panantheism, which is everything in the world is part of God. Like, like God is everywhere, and so the trees, those are part of God, and the earth, and the sea, and the sky, those are all parts of God, and you are part of God. We don't believe in either one of those. Those are unbiblical, faulty views of the world, pantheism and panantheism. We also don't believe that we coexist with God, dualism. We would rather confess that everything that is, is from nothing. Everything that is, is from nothing. All creation came out of nothing. Uh, uh, the big word for this that you might read in certain books is ex nihilo, came out of no thing. All that is created came out of nothing. If that is true, then a Christ who is created was created out of nothing. And if he is created out of nothing, then our union with him means we still remain nothing. From dust we came and, from, and to dust we returned. This is a problem. If we are united with what is a created thing, then our union with him only preserves our state as created things and things that are passing away and returning to dust. He then must be a savior who himself is in substance with the eternal father. And then look at verse 3. You know your life to be safely hidden with Christ Although, in the eyes of the world, it will seem like you are currently without hope. 
uh, uh, Friday, I spoke from 1 John 3 at Mary Beth Tillison's funeral, and I, and I said this in verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we shall be has not yet been manifest, not clear, but we know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. Verse 4, when Christ, the true life of all his people, is here, is manifest, then you who share in his life will share in his glory. I know that it presently seems like we share in a hopeless state with everyone else in the world. If our economy struggles, we struggle. If, if a global pandemic strikes, we suffer. It seems like we are in the same boat. That's what verse 4 is helping us with. But when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It will someday become obvious to everyone watching that we were not in the boat of hopeless despair. All the while, we were in the hope of Jesus Christ. And even though you can't display that certain confidence now, it's going to become obvious when Christ arrives. So Philippians 3.20, we are waiting for a Savior, the Lord Christ Jesus, who will change our lowly state to be like His glorious state. The day of our finally beheld salvation may be in the future. And it may not yet be seen, but I want to point out one piece of grammar that I hope helps your worship. It's the last word of verse 4. It's the word glory. Uh, oddly, it's a verb. It's not a noun. Uh, think of uh, glorification. Maybe that helps our verb context a little bit. That verb is in the past tense. So remember I told you these tenses matter? If then you are united with what happened 2,000 years ago at the resurrection, then currently seek, set your mind, because you are looking forward to what's not yet seen, which is your glorification with Christ. That's already done. Today, we celebrate our union, our participation with Christ. What He has done, we are receiving the benefit of. When, when we talk, and here's where Western Christians, we tend to think mostly about um, individual and legal relationships. So therefore, 
One thing that we emphasize a lot is justification. Like maybe, maybe you've been able to see yourself really clearly sitting in the courtroom, God is the judge, and you are being tried as a rebel, a sinner. And, and you've heard people explain, oh, but in the grace of God, because of the completed work of Christ, the gavel hammers down and he pronounces you innocent, free from guilt. And let me just oversimplify what's left out of that. If you have come from ex nihilo, nothing, then being told you're innocent only assures you don't go to hell, but go back to ex nihilo, nothing. So to simply emphasize that in Christ we can be justified is to only celebrate we don't have to go to eternal damnation, just back to dust. That's what we miss if we just have justification, but not participation. But in participation, we are already seated at the right hand of God in Christ. In participation, we see Christ conquering death, raised in victory as the giver of life more than just the forgiver of life. So picture it this way. Maybe even the kids, this will help. Um, you know what blood transfusion is? Sometimes you go to the hospital and you have to get a blood transfusion. And maybe it's because you lost blood and need to get some. But a blood transfusion, you're actually getting rid of some of yours and getting something else. Maybe, maybe your blood has become unhealthy uh, and you have to get rid of it. And so you go and you get hooked up to maybe two machines. One is taking the bad blood out and another one is putting new good blood in. That's a picture of participation. So we can see ourselves in the courtroom hearing God the judge say, bang, 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 you are innocent. And that's amazing. But I want you to see today as we celebrate the resurrection that death is beat. I want you to see two new blood coursing through your veins that promises that you don't in the end become nothing, but that promises that in the end you become what Jesus is. Eternal, everlasting, without end. At the right hand of God the Father. Living forevermore. we see then we're not only saved by the announcement of justification, but the participation with Christ. Ephesians 2. God has taken us even when we were dead in our sins and made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you're united in His resurrection, and I, I, I mean to say if, please don't forget are you trusting in anything other than Jesus? So if, if you're united in his resurrection, then we see and think with perspectives and priorities 
that can only be shared by those who are in the throne room of heaven. And then we see here, Christ will appear soon and what you already are will be clearly seen as you will be with Him in His glory. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ. Provided that we have been part of His death, we also will be part of His life and glory. Let me pray. Father, thank You for the resurrection to eternal life. Father, thank You that the resurrection did not just happen as a justice that Christ could not be held by the grave there was no rightful claim of Him because He was without sin. But thank You that in His death and His resurrection, You have amazingly united us to Him. And yes, it means that we do walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But it also means that we fear no evil. Thank you for the resurrection to eternal life. Thank you for granting us eyes to see as though from the throne room. Thank you for promising us that our walk by faith will not be put to shame. But when our Messiah comes again, when we stand before Him, then we share in His glory as though already ours. Thank You for the gift of salvation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray today, Lord, to You, as I, I believe in your Spirit's working. I believe that flesh and blood cannot reveal the things of the Gospel to the heart of man. And so we pray that God the Spirit would work in the heart and the understanding and the illumination of people who don't yet fully trust in Christ alone and therefore aren't yet united with Him. But that today, as we celebrate resurrection, that theirs would also be a resurrection from their deadness and their trespasses and sins. So God, we commit it to you. I'm sure the church prays together to you for the work of salvation. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand with me?